Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let us segue to economics, finance, and investment and the next moves. Andrew Slemon joins us, Senior Portfolio Manager at Morgan Stanley. Uh, Andrew Slemon, John Farrow, you know him, the famed investment strategist, once told me the year always starts March 31. It is upon us right now with the great reset of December 31 reviews that should be thrown out the window. What is your reset March 31 as you move on? Well, I think March 31 will be ugly, but it certainly won't be as ugly as um, it was uh, earlier this month. I think the markets put in a very noble rally off the low, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if we bang around here or even higher before the end of March. But I don't think that's the I don't think we've seen the low for the for the year. So I think there's more pain to come. You know, in second quarter into the summer before we put in the ultimate low. There's a kink where yield helps the banks, helps the markets, and then it doesn't. Yield gets too high. Where is that on equivalent 10 year U.S. yield? What's the level where it really begins to hurt? Boy, you have nailed it. Did I do I okay? Think, <laughs> I think that is that is the key question. Because, you know, look, these yield curves, choose your yield. It's almost like choose your yield curve that fits your narrative. Oh, if you want to, you know, talk about a recession, then you look at the two-year to 10-year. If you if you think, uh, you know, things aren't that bad and the economy is strengthened, then you look at the three months to 10-year, that's steepening. Um, and so I think the point is, is that uh, financials run out of steam before the yield curve tops out. And so that's that's going to be my litmus test of are we really headed towards a real slowdown or is the economy going to be able to withstand Fed tightening? And I think the relative performance of financials is going to tell you if they keep performing OK in a rising interest rate environment, that tells me that, you know, we, we will we will survive this you know Fed tightening campaign. I don't know what the number is. Uh, Tom, but I'm I'm looking at the relative performance to help determine that. Andrew, let's build on that and apply it to the financials. Bank of America did some work on this recently. <clears throat> There's a difference between what the yield curve means for profitability for earnings and what the yield curve means for multiples. Another way of putting that is what the yield curve means for investor attitudes to that particular industry group. Do you still think, even if it perhaps shouldn't because the business model has evolved drastically over the last few decades for banks on Wall Street, do you think still the shape of that yield curve, twos out to ten, still shapes investor appetite for this industry group. Yes. <laughs> and that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, I mean, you know, so I, I heard what you said. I, you know, we've got analysts that tell me this over and over. And then I watch what, you know, the correlation to the yield curve and it yep. still remains. It remains high. So, I mean, look what happened when, you know, when, when, when the first invasion happened and there was a flight to treasuries. What happened to the banks? They got crushed. And maybe that's because of exposure and so forth. But I think it's because the yield yields dropped. So I hear what you said. Uh, I, I agree with that, except the correlation of stock price performance remains uh, correlated to that yield curve. 
and perhaps it always will. Andrew, you're going to stick with us. What a day we've Good. got coming up. Andrew Sliman and Morgan Stanley. There are days where you get the wrong guest. And then, Paul, there are days <laughs> where not only do you get the right guest, but the right guest at the right uh, moment. We are waiting, Mr. Stoltenberg, at NATO. We will follow those headlines, but far more important, Admiral Stravitas joins us this morning. James Stravitas, of course, Supreme Commander NATO, uh, with immense uh, naval experience. A, a number of reports this morning, Admiral, of Ukraine striking a Russian Navy. In a, one of the videos I saw, not official, I need to be extra careful here, was almost a mini Pearl Harbor with Halsey going out to sea. And that the missile came in, hit a boat and or an ammo dump. And of course, the other ships immediately go out to sea as Halsey was smart enough to do at Pearl Harbor. Tell us what that moment is like when out of nowhere there's a missile attack, a ship under fire. What do the other ships do? Tom, this is uh, very reminiscent of Pearl Harbor, of course. And uh, December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy, Japanese attack, and our entire battleship fleet gets knocked out. But as you point out, the carriers were out to sea, and they came back and saved uh, the U.S. Navy at the Battle of Midway about six months later. So let's hope it turns out that way for our Ukrainian friends. Um, they know these waters well. They have a competent Navy. I've visited Many times, the Ukrainian Navy, it, it operates out of Crimea, and they will continue to fight and fight hard against these Russians. How understaffed is the Russian Navy? We, we have lots of reports of the military, but tell us, is the staffing of the Russian Navy perhaps as fragile as we've seen in reports of the Army? You know, it's not, Tom. I wish it were, but the Russian Navy... Because uh, ships are such uh, unitary objects, they bring their own logistics, they bring their own medical, they bring their own power, heat, and light. Also, the Russian Navy has higher numbers of professional soldiers than the Army does. So as much as I wish I could tell you the Russian Navy is on the verge right. of collapse like the Russian Army appears to be, that will not be the case. So, Admiral, let's talk about the Russian army. Are you as surprised as a lot of other folks were how ineffective the Russian army was here as we entered the second month of this uh, invasion? I was. Um, I think all of us watched the spending that Vladimir Putin's Russia put into their armed forces and into their army. We watched the training that they did. We watched their performance in Syria, admittedly small scale, and we thought they would simply be better. But what, what has failed them is bad generalship. You know, admirals love to criticize generals, so I'm <laughs> going to do it. Just really bad planning by the generals. Too many axes diluted the forces. As Tom and I were just talking about, too many conscripts in that tranche right. of 200,000 troops. And finally, massive corruption has clearly occurred here because what Vladimir Putin thought he was buying for all of those defense increases has not shown up on the battlefield. Big problems. Admiral, given your experience, how do you think this plays out? Is this going to be a long siege, if you will, of some of the key cities of Ukraine? Is there? How do you see this playing out over the next several weeks, months, and I don't know how much longer? 
plan A was uh, blitzkrieg, decapitate Zelensky, take over the country. That's clearly failed completely. Plan B is to terrorize the population, pound cities into submission with long fires, and try and negotiate an agreement. I think that plan B is probably the best chance Putin has of getting out of this in one piece. And a deal could look like he gains control of the Russian-speaking, call it 15% of the country. The rest of the country sails on under Zelensky. I think that's how this comes out in about two months, three months, maybe. Amos Tavita's headlines just coming out, and of course this is a joint declaration after summit meeting of NATO leaders. They say they will prepare for chemical nuclear threat. I can't imagine I've ever seen a headline like that back perhaps to World War II and indeed back to the tragedy of World War I. What is the stereotype of chemical warfare that we get wrong? We have black and white movies of World War I, of the winds the mustard gas, that's ancient. What's the stereotype we most fail at? Um, We fail to understand how capably these uh, nerve agents in particular can be used in very direct ways. And they have uh, the ability to, to, to confine them so that you're not putting up massive clouds of mustard gas over a battlefield. And Tom, secondly, Um, and this is good news, there are much more capabilities to respond today to chemical types of attacks. So it's a mixed picture. It's not a silver bullet for Vladimir Mm -hmm. Putin. We have a lot of counters to it, and that's what the U.S. and NATO will be putting in place in order to try and stay one step ahead of Putin. James Stravitas, he is an author, folks. I can't say enough about the immediacy and the clear moment of his wonderful 2034. Yes, on the Pacific Rim in China, but somehow more immediate today. 2034 is a wonderful uh, read. Right now, with a very important note this morning at her Chatham house, Leslie Vinger Murray joins us. Dr. Vinger Murray is director of U.S. and America's program uh, for the London shop. Leslie, you've got that A word in your report. I've been talking all morning about the linkage of war to diplomacy. Tell me how diplomacy and war can be linked through attrition. Well, the attrition, I think, is the really concerning part here. We've clearly moved into a war that Russia has uh, fallen far short of its own expectations, of the world's expectations, and is resorting to brutality, war crimes, as they've been called and likely are, certainly look like they are. Um, and that means a war of attrition. The diplomacy carries on and, and alongside those very coercive measures, the sanctions. And as you look at Biden's trip, Uh, to Europe, he's really focused very much on ensuring that Western unity, you know, the diplomacy is not only um, with Russia on the question of Ukraine, but it's amongst the European partners. It's uh, very much, I think, one of the key points right now for Biden and Jake Sullivan noted this is ensuring that Europe stays on board, putting pressure on China. That's an absolutely critical factor in this diplomacy. Is there a lesson of linking present attrition towards chemical weapons that we can learn from Syria and the Russian experience there? I think that the concern about the chemical weapons use in Syria is, of course, that the U.S. doesn't want to say that it will do something and not follow through Obama's 
red line uh, is, is very well known. Uh, we won't see a red line of that kind drawn, although the, uh, the clear warnings that the chemical weapons use shouldn't be tolerated, that there is a ban that most countries around the world have signed up to. Uh, we know this. And there will be talks now. I think everybody's waiting to see what the U.S. and Europe will say. What will they do uh, should Assad resort to the use, uh, should, uh, should Assad, should um, Putin resort uh, to the use of, of chemical weapons. Well, Leslie, we've talked about attrition. Let's also talk about the theory of <coughs> deterrence. I'm taking it back to my foreign affairs classes at the University of Virginia. I mean, do we need to rethink deterrence if Vladimir Putin has proven time and again that he is not able to be deterred? Well, I think that uh, from NATO's perspective, from the U.S. perspective, the clear deterrent threat has been um, with respect to NATO as opposed to with respect to Ukraine. The red line is that there will be a very significant punishment inflicted should this war uh, involve direct engagement with NATO. That is the, the strongest line. Uh, some people argue that deterrence has failed with respect to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think that that is clear, but there's there are still significant measures being put in place. But ultimately, yes, um, it's been it's been virtually impossible uh, to stop Putin from from uh, just intense acts of brutality on the Ukrainian people because it's clear that that has been absolutely critical to him. But, you know, yeah. from a clear deterrence perspective, that hasn't been NATO's number one goal. We can debate whether it should have been. Yeah. Well, and I would also love to debate whether warning of consequences means anything if you don't actually detail what those consequences would be, Leslie. But I also want to mention China because oh. we heard from the Chinese ambassador to the U.S. today talking about the friendship, the no limits friendship between Beijing and Moscow. He said, well, it doesn't have limits. There is a bottom line. How are you thinking about China's role here? Well, I think this is absolutely critical. I mean, there are many, many dimensions to this. The most obvious and direct one is whether China continues to assist Russia uh, in, in subverting the, the tremendous sanctions package. The big question on the table is whether or not it will respond to Russia's request for military equipment. And this is what Biden is really working with Europe to shore up a very hard line of the sanctions that China would face uh, were it to do that. But I think we also have a third and question, which is sort of a first uh, first order question, which is about global order uh, going forward. The UN Security Council is now facing a grave crisis where one of its permanent members has openly openly violated the most fundamental norm in the charter where China isn't really calling that out, also holds a permanent uh, seat on the Security Council or any other number of global governance mechanisms that are critical to solving the big problems of climate, of the global uh, economy, depend on China uh, and if China doesn't um, demonstrate some willingness to to cooperate in, in bringing this conflict uh, to a close rapidly, uh, then I think it's going to make it just much more difficult to solve those much broader questions which are affecting people across the Middle East, across Africa with uh, oil prices, with energy more broadly, and of course with, uh, with grains. Um, and commodities. Leslie, thank you, as always, for your perspective. Leslie Vinjamari there of Chatham House. Stephen Stanley with us now, as Mike McKee mentions, with some wisdom. Stephen, I've got to rip up the strip script and go to the current account deficit, uh, the current account balance, rather, a big deficit, which clearly indicates something back to 2006, 2007. What is the significance of our current account balance literally off a cliff. 
Yeah, no, it's it's a function of very strong demand, uh, demand that we can't satisfy entirely at home, and so we're having to uh, we're having to import a lot of stuff, both for consumers and for businesses, and that's been the case really since we got over the the lockdowns. The the trade deficit, the current account deficit, right. has been ballooning since then. If demand is there, is the gloom the gloom crew just flat out wrong, and the economy is going to be resilient because the consumer is there? Yeah, I, I think that the economy is going to be resilient, certainly for, for for a time. I mean, you look at the at the household balance sheet. Households are sitting on a few trillion dollars in extra cash that they accumulated during the pandemic. Wealth um, is up huge on the business side. Corporate profits have made record high, so businesses are pretty flush as well. Um, so, it, you know, people talk about the Fed tightening us into a recession, and I, you know, the, there is a point at which that could happen, but it's cert- we're certainly nowhere near that in terms of the level of rates that, where we are now or where we're likely to be um, over the balance of this year for sure. The city came out with a massive call this morning, Stephen. I'd love your response to it, your reaction. They said the median dot for appropriate policy rates at the end of 22 in the June SEP could, not a base case, it may, rise to around 3% from 175 to 2. How far do you think they're willing to push it this year? As high as 3 Well, I, I mean, look, things could change. I mean, obviously, the... the um, the dynamic has changed quite a lot and what the Fed is anticipating has changed with every quarterly new set of uh, projections. But I would say if you listen carefully to what they're saying now, it seems like we've got a two-phase tightening cycle on our hands. Phase one is just getting back to neutral. And a lot of the folks that have spoken this week have suggested they'd like to get back to somewhere close to neutral by the end of this year. And then next year would be about taking policy into at least modestly restrictive territory. So, I, you know, I think most people on the Fed think that neutral is two and a quarter to two and a half. Um, and that's kind of where I'm right at the moment. That's where I'm pegging uh, us to, to get to by the end of the year. Can I go through a scenario with you, a potential one, sure. and try and understand whether you understand the reaction function of this Fed? If they came across Q4 2018 and the market decided to tell them where neutral is, go away, and we had that kind of big move in credit again, and inflation wasn't coming down, Stephen, what would they do? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. I would say at this point, it sounds pretty clear that inflation is job one for the Fed, and they feel they, they have an urgent need to get inflation under control. I think they feel that time is ticking, and the longer we go with high inflation, the more likely it is to get embedded in the the expectations, the longer-term expectations of consumers and businesses. Um, so, I, you know, I think that's the urgent task right now is, is to get inflation down. And, um, you know, and they certainly don't want to cause a recession, but um, I, I think if, if it's necessary to slow the economy to get inflation down, it seems like they would be willing to do so at this point. And what role does the balance sheet play in that effort, Stephen? We heard from Jim Bullard, who also wants 3% by the end of the year, thinks the neutral rate, though, is actually around 2%. But he was saying it's going to be passive runoff. Can the Fed stick with passivity here? I think the Fed believes that the balance sheet is something that kind of runs in the background. I mean, you look at it now, and clearly there's the, the balance sheet is very large, and there's a tremendous amount of excess liquidity in the system. But it just kind of sloshes around. We get, you know, $1.8 trillion in the in the getting put back to the Fed in the overnight reverse RP program uh, most days uh, lately. And so 
you know, they could take out 1.8 trillion and maybe do very little in terms of economic impact because they're just draining the money that's getting put back to them anyway. I, I think their view is that as long as they're shrinking the balance sheet over time, um, that they can manage whatever fallout comes from that with the various tools and rates that they have um, on the money market front. In terms of managing fallout, though, the narrative is that monetary policy is always going to operate with a lag. That will be true in terms of reigning in, reigning, reigning in inflation. But on the growth side, by the time you actually potentially could start seeing an impact on growth, is it going to be too late and policy too far gone? Well, uh, you know, that's always the classic thing is the Fed goes too far and waits too long. I mean, we've certainly seen it on the on the easy side over the last year where the Fed was just too slow to get going. Um, and, you know, another classic mistake that the Fed has made at times is going too far and kind of overstaying the tight welcome. Again, though, I mean, you know, if neutral is truly in that two and a quarter to two and a half range, um, we've got a pretty far way to go to get to the even just to get there. And then, you know, a modestly restrictive policy, in my view, you know, 25, 50, even 75 basis points above neutral is not likely to derail the economy overnight. So, um, yes, in theory, there is a level of rates that would um, kind of slam the brakes on the economy. But I, I think it's very far from uh, where we are today and, and likely above you know, where markets are expecting the Fed to go uh, at the moment. Stephen Stanley there of Amherst Pierpont. Stephen, thank you. An important interview on something that is receding into the history books, and that is COVID. Stefan Bunsell with Eli Lilly in Belgium and then on to his extraordinary performance on mRNA at Moderna is one of the heroes of the moment. And the chief executive officer joins us this morning. Stefan, are you worried about a new variant of Omicron? Uh, so first of all, thank you for having me and thank you for the kind words. Uh, I'm not losing sleep on it. As I've said before, I think there's an 80% chance that the variants that we're going to see in the future are manageable from a severity standpoint and vaccine protection. But I think we should always be very cautious because there's a 20% chance that something happens in terms of a new variant that is very virulent. Like if you remember, Delta came after Alpha, but it was more virulent, Delta than Alpha. So we have to be cautious and we're staying ready as a company to be able to update the vaccine as fast as we can if needed. In America, we have such a low usage of the booster. Now, we're talking with you about the success of under six years old uh, treatment and such. Tell us what we need to do to get a worldwide booster program going. What is the next step in a COVID that in our minds, maskless, is receding? Yeah, I think people have to be careful, especially based on their risk. You know, I have daughters that are 18 and 19, you know, they've got vaccinated. Do they need to get boosted every year? Maybe not. We don't know yet. We need to look at the data. But, you know, my parents that are in their 70s and 80s uh, need to be protected most probably once a year with a booster like we do with flu. Because the issue as you get older, our immune system is not as strong like people that have, you know, cancer or other disease. Yeah. And those are the people we need to be very careful about. Well, Mr. Bonsell, you didn't just apply, though, for a fourth booster shot for older people. You applied for all adults. What was the thinking behind that? Yeah, it's to give a flexibility to the regulator to adapt to their needs. Let's not forget that there are people, unfortunately, that are 25-year-old that have cancer 
or 35 year old that have organ transplant. And so we applied 18 and above so that in our dialogue with the FDA and regulators around the world, we can give them all the tools and all the data so we can make the right decision country by country. All right. And while we're having a conversation about booster shots, potentially fourth shots for adults, we also have to talk about the under six-year-olds, which Tom Keen mentioned. You released the data yesterday on the efficacy uh, of looking for FDA clearance. On what timeline do you expect that? So I think potentially this authorization of six months to six years could happen faster in the UK, Europe, Canada and other countries. For the FDA, it might take a bit of time. As you might know, the vaccine is not currently approved for teenagers in, uh, in the US. And so we're going to have to work with them to get all that age cohort. But we are in constant dialogue with the FDA. And so we're going to do our best with them to get this uh, as fast as we can to parents. But also we have, to, of course, to be very careful with safety, which is a number one priority when you talk about vaccines. Stefan, what is so important here is the outrageous success of mRNA in the timeline that you and your good competitors at Pfizer were under. What does mRNA do next? What is the next step after the stunning success you've achieved? So what we want to do is we want to have people not being sick, hospitalized, or dying from respiratory virus. There are around 10 respiratory virus that lead to disease and hospitalization. And today there's only vaccine against flu. As you know, most of them don't work very well. We announced today very good data on our first generation of flu shot, which we want to combine into a single shot, COVID booster, flu booster in only one shot. We also have RSV, which is another respiratory virus that is in phase three right now. We also announcing this week that we'll combine COVID and flu and RSV booster. So we make it very easy for people. The idea will be you get a shot a year mm-hmm. and you are you are well protected. And what are the odds that an mRNA flu shot will be superior? So I think over time it's pretty high. What we're going to do with the current product and we've showing today that we have the possibility for the most important strain of flu, which is influenza A, leading for 95% of hospitalization or level of antibody is higher. We have to demonstrate it in a large study in phase three, but it smells pretty good. And that's our first generation of flu. We're then going to add more components to get the efficacy way higher. So give us a couple iteration of product, and I'm talking couple years, not 10 or 20 years, and I believe we're going to get a very high efficacy flu shot on the market. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us today. Mr. Bansell, of course, with Moderna and the great success of their mRNA uh, vaccine. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.